0: This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.
1: Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The Taoiseach assures the all that the new National Maternity Hospital will effectively be in public ownership.
0: Leasing,
2: uh, land in a building for 300 years at, at, a, at a tenor a year, that is ownership.
1: Robert Watt defends the handling of the proposed secondment of Tony Houlihan as he faced the Oireachtas Joint Committee on Health today. The rich get richer. How some of Ireland's wealthiest put off paying taxes by using COVID schemes. And later, betting companies claim that they're seeing no impact from the rising cost of living. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. tonight that all became heated today as the Taoiseach defended ownership proposals for the new maternity hospital on the St Vincent's Hospital campus in Dublin.
3: This has to be done now Taoiseach before any contracts are signed so will you work urgently to convince St Vincent's Health Group to gift that land to the state? If a 299 year lease amounts
1: effectively to state ownership Why don't we see a gifting of this site to the state? Telling St Vincent's Healthcare, and
4: by the way, St Vincent's Healthcare, the clue is in the name about continued religious uh, influence, that they should gift this land to give the National Maternity Hospital to the state so that it is fully publicly owned and controlled. Leasing
2: uh, land in a building for 300 years at, at at a tenor a year That is ownership by any stretch of
4: the imagination. That is public ownership by any historic or objective analysis.
1: Well, with me to discuss the latest in this ongoing controversy is Group Head of News with the Irish Independent, Kevin Doyle, Minister of State for Special Education and Inclusion, Josepha Madigan, Sinn Féin TD, Louisa Reilly. And the Master of the National Maternity Hospital, Professor Shane Higgins. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, to come to you first, Kevin, this was brought before the Cabinet very quickly. There was pushback around it. And now the Taoiseach today in the doll defending the plans. How politically sensitive
5: is this right now? Yeah, The Taoiseach again tonight telling uh, a private Fianna Fáil party meeting that it's going to happen, or at least that it's decision time. It, it's a real problematic one because I think all the politicians agree on the principle, which is that the National Maternity Hospital in Holler Street is no longer... Well, it hasn't been fit for purpose for, for years, arguably decades. It, it makes Call the Midwife look like a futuristic drama in some ways. Uh, and I say that as someone who's had recent reason to be there. But the problem here is that the doctors are differing and it's really confusing, I think, for the people. And I don't think the politicians, with no offence to... to uh, our colleagues here are qualified to fully understand the legal legalities behind all of this. So on one hand, you have people who seem to believe that there are nuns going to appear out of the woodwork in this new building and tell doctors what they're doing. And on the other hand, you have people who think it's just time to mm. do this. And so we've kind of end up in this position where it's very hard to know who's right because all the people making the arguments are experts.
1: We're joined by Professor Shane Higgins, who's master of the National Maternity Hospital. Thanks for joining us on the show tonight, Professor. Another hurdle uh, when the hospital thought that its plans around this were over the line after more than two decades. Are you confident that the deal will be done in a matter of weeks?
4: Yes, I am. In fact, um, uh, if I could just take up a point that Kevin made uh, when clinicians differ, there's only one real uh, clinician who's opposed to this. In fact, we wrote a letter a couple of weeks ago with 52 consultants from the National Maternity Hospital and the Director of Midwifery, which we signed, saying that we had no concerns about the move to St. Vincent's University Hospital and co-locating. But going back to this, we've been working on this for about eight, nine years now, and I think we've all been very heavily involved as clinicians, uh, the legal team representing the hospital. And we do believe there's a deal there that we are very comfortable with. It will give us clinical and operational independence on the new site. Um, We don't believe there will be any religious involvement in the provision of care at the new National Maternity Hospital. And we'll be able to provide all services that are um, within the uh, Irish legislation system.
1: Yeah, you mentioned their clinical independence. It's certainly something that has been brought up of critics of this move, that there are still many questions around that. Do you believe the concerns that people have are legitimate around ownership, control and governance of the hospital? I absolutely think they're genuine
4: concerns. And I, I welcome the opportunity for people to review the legal framework documents that were published last night on the HSE website. And I think there will be an opportunity. And I met with the Green Party uh, parliamentary uh, members this evening to go through the documents with them and to answer their questions and allay their anxieties. And I'm going to do that again over the coming two weeks. And I'll meet with anyone and explain the situation and, and provide the narrative from the clinician's perspective.
1: Uh, on this one, Louise O'Reilly, Micheál Martin um, saying in the hall today, we've heard there from um, Professor Shane Higgins uh, that, you know, this needs to go ahead and that there will be clinical independence. And that He shook saying the land at St Vincent's is effectively public ownership. Is he right no
2: he's not a lease
1: is not ownership. Um, if a lease was ownership, then the state
2: would own the land they don't don 't own the land. Uh, the concerns that have been raised have been raised by uh, by a number of people by legal experts and 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 by clinicians um I think the opportunity now... I mean, the government has recognised that there's an issue. They wouldn't have paused uh, the decision it went to Cabinet yesterday. My understanding is that several uh, ministers raised concern and for that reason it didn't get through Cabinet and there has been a pause on it. So we need to use that time effectively. Um, Mary Lou Macdonald today in the Dáil had said to the Taoiseach, you know, we should be working together, cross party. You can see there's there's almost unanimity, I think, on the side on the behalf of the opposition parties. We know that there are concerns within government because clearly that uh, that has been articulated in the media. So I think what what needs to happen at this stage is yes, we all need to scrutinise the documents absolutely, but there does need to be that engagement between the Minister for Health and uh, and the Dáil. Yeah, I'd ha- like to see him come yeah, into how the specifically Dáil, to be do you want
1: those con- concerns
2: allayed. Well, I think, first of all, we need to, uh, the minister has said he is convinced that, uh, sorry, the Taoiseach has said he's convinced that a lease means ownership. So, I mean, he needs to explain how a lease means ownership. It doesn't mean ownership to me. It means a lease. It means rent. Uh, And also, we need to know that there are certain clauses within that relate to medically necessary procedures that that can be, you know, what we want to see is the maternity hospital built. You know, I in 1995, when I had my daughter in Hollis Street, it was not fit for purpose. Uh, certainly when my grandson was born there six, six and a half years ago, whatever, it was not fit for purpose. So we all want the same thing, but we need to be certain that that clinical independence will be there and we need to be yes. certain that there will be, uh, all procedures will be performed without any interference or any hint of any interference because even a hint of interference yeah. will have this a chilling is continuously, effect And this has
1: been brought up, this clause um, within the, the legal documents, um, Shane, clause referring to the provision of services that were clinically appropriate and legally permitted. Why is that clause there?
4: So from the outset, we tried to protect the building for specific use, maternity, gynecology and neonatal services. So clinically appropriate refers to that, that it's only maternity, gynecology and neonatal services that will be provided within the hospital. We don't want the state or St. Vincent suggesting that we will do cardiac surgery or
1: neurosurgery there. This is to protect the function of the building. And, and just to a what, point what ladies, about the, the concerns that are around it that it also means that say um, if there's abortion on demand and if a woman wants an abortion not because it's clinically necessary that she won't be able to avail of that well if that becomes
4: the case then if a clinician for conscientious objection reasons decides that they won't do it they have to pass that patient on to somebody who will do it so there's no question that is that
1: does that is that Normal. Does that happen in no, maternity it hospitals? We provide all
4: the services that are currently uh, within Irish legislation within the National Maternity Hospital, and we'll continue to do that at the new site.
1: Is it an issue that you're potentially worried about then? No,
4: not in the slightest. I mean, uh, you know, we were one of the first hospitals to provide an abortion service in 2019 when the legislation was enacted. Uh, we continue to provide that service and all other services that have been called into question, like transgender surgery or. or um, Sterilisation, artificial reproductive techniques—they're all provided at the National Maternity Hospital, and will
1: continue to be provided in the new hospital. Even though it's on on the land with with, as we know, that is that that is so, so contentious to people right now. But it's not. There, there's.
4: Ample examples of leaseholds. The National Maternity is a leasehold. The new hospital at St Vincent's is a leasehold. The Mansion House is a leasehold. The,
3: the Tala Hospital is, is a leasehold. You don't to have to own the land.
1: And St James's Hospital is leased as well. Um, you know. To, so you to, have you, to, you kind of any issues way. with the Josepha Mandigan? Because we no. know that there were ministers around the cabinet table that did express yeah, I, um, I concern about the way in which the plans were brought to cabinet, uh, and maybe the, the communication around them and the lack of transparency. Yeah, I mean, I understand
3: why um, some of the ministers vocalised their concerns at Cabinet. And I think it probably had to be paused because they would have been contacted by their own constituents uh, who obviously clearly had concerns. But I think it's been really helpful uh, to hear from Professor uh, Shane Higgins uh, this evening. I mean, there, there, there are so many you know clinicians and consultants with credibility very strong credibility in this area that I would listen to for example Rono O'Mahony and uh, Mary Higgins uh, these were people who were involved in, in repeal the 8th um, they have said that they, they are satisfied and also that the AG has given advice in relation oh to this f- from the legal framework okay. as well um, so you oh. know i i think this is an opportunity where we have like we, we actually want to move ahead with this is this is this is uh, like the biggest Investment uh, in women's yes, health, yes, and we know that,
1: that that's like, continuously you know, the so line it, that it, this it really this is badly needed, and, and we've hi- highlighted how it is badly needed. But, like the big question is, and that's been the big question politically that was put out there today, and has been for some time around this: why not buy the land, build a public hospital on public land, and put the issue to bed? I suppose
5: we've gone very far down this road, and just because you've gone down a wrong road is not a reason to to. Uh, The road isn't perfect, but is it the wrong road, I suppose, is the question. Does Mm. it get to the destination, which is a new hospital? Uh, I know Mary Lou MacDonald raised gifting today. That's not on the table. You can't actually go in and force the nuns to gift something. No more than I can take your iPad off you, Claire, if you don't want to give it to me, it's your iPad. So I think saying the Taoiseach has to do that is, I think that's been going on for years and it hasn't happened. So we should accept probably that's not going to happen. The compulsory purchase order side of things, It's an option. But the truth of it is, I'd be absolutely shocked if we gave as the state gave 50 or 60 million to the Sisters of Charity, we'd be sitting here tonight having a very similar but different debate about why did we give religious charity after all their history? 50 or 60 million. How did we come up with that figure? Is this a scandal and let's have the inquiry?
3: The, you'd have to CPO the entire site uh, and you wouldn't get the cooperation. Okay. Uh, do, you a, a, the, of the do you believe Do you believe that's true?
1: Do you believe that that's the discussion we'd be having if we handed over tens of millions of euros to the nuns? We, we, we can't know that. But I think the, the issue...
2: But would that of, be an issue?
1: What was, is, is, put, is that no, no, a problem no, what, what in was, itself potentially? What was put
2: potentially? To the today was that he would work with the members of the opposition. I don't think uh, Mary Lynn MacDonald was the only person to say this. I think others had said it as well that we would work cross-party to attempt to persuade the the, uh, the sisters of charity to gift that land you know what the, no, but what, okay, the okay, saying, it, month, what the, it, what know, the is saying what the is saying is that gift, really? uh, effectively no it's not well no it's, it's not it's and uh, and giving someone giving someone yes. the right to rent something is not giving it to them minister and you know that yeah. so i think the the issue around the land and around... I mean, there's a very real reason why women in particular have concerns about religious involvement in our healthcare. care. Do you, so do you not listen to those the experts, the medical experts on this? I Some of them, to, them were involved. I listen Just to... Let, um, Louise you know, I listen, let Louise finish you know, her point. Listen, let Louise bit, finish bit, bit her
1: point the health, and then we'll come back yeah.
2: to pregnancy. I listen to all sides. Mm-hmm. And my concern is that the independence will be guaranteed. What I cannot for the life of me understand is that the Sisters of Charity are prepared to enter into a 299-year lease, but they won't gift the land? I ha- nobody has explained to me. Okay, why can you we explain it? To it, it you can it I, think I think the time. fact that the 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 Minister of health, that.
3: health is going into the Rocktas Committee, I think it's next week. You know, he'll be able to, to answer yeah. questions. Yes, and do you know what? We may get some answers tonight. We may get some answers tonight. Tell us
1: why that is. I mean, it's a 299-year lease, ten euro. Okay so the first thing is what, the nuns why is are it gone. Happening the
4: way? nuns have divested their interest in St. Vincent's Healthcare Group in the last couple of weeks. They have passed their share, their only share to a, a, public, charitable, to, trust. To a charitable trust a charitable trust and not for profit charitable trust. Is it Vatican approved? It's been it, they had to get permission from the Vatican, but there is no it is a secular charitable organization. There is no religious involvement. You saw the letter from Jimmy Menton today in the Irish Times saying that there is no religious involvement in the St. Vincent's campus, nor will there be any religious Why involvement.
1: Why then is this the golden service. chair there from a minister, the minister, should there be any issues? Like what, There's all complexities to it that it don't is, it make is sense a very to people. Bespoke.
4: It is a very bespoke uh, arrangement very sure because you're bringing two voluntary hospitals onto the one site um, and, and they have to work together on the campus. There's a campus-wide issue as well as the individual hospitals We have a board of nine people. St. Vincent's, and there's another misconception that St. Vincent's own the New National Maternity Hospital or the DAC. They don't. They own 99 of the 100 shares. The minister owns the other share. He is there to protect the operational
1: and clinical independence of the New National Maternity Hospital. All right. And just on to the subject of the site. Why this site? Why is it so critically important that it must be here? So
4: there's a a report that goes back to the late 2000s, KPMG report on the co-location of the Dublin maternities, which said that all three Dublin maternities should relocate, co-locate, with an adult acute hospital. we okay, were going to But it to could be Tala. Yeah, it was, but it, it was decided at the time and it's been decided since that St. Vincent's is the best option. It's the closest one to us. It's right in the centre of our catchment area. We already have about 30 to 40% of our consultants have, have contracts between both hospitals. Although
1: some would say it's not close to everyone. Like, it might no, be relatively... But Tala is, you know,
4: no, but we, I mean, on, there's on the same side of the
1: city would be less contentious when you see these issues and €40 million Euro already being spent on plans when we still have no site being developed?
4: Well, the, the, the issues aren't, in, aren't the makings of the clinicians at the National Maternity Hospital, nor the clinicians at St Vincent's, whom we work very closely with. And we've already established over the last 15 to 20 years, very strong working relationships through uh, multidisciplinary clinics that we run at the National Maternity Hospital. We've got rheumatologists, cardiologists, hepatologists, all coming in to look after the more complex cases that we now deal with every day. And that's why we need this co-location. Yeah
3: like six to 10 women are transferred every year to the ICU in, in Vincent's. So hundreds of women have to go over for inpatient and outpatient services. Like Dr. Ona Mani talked about did, did that, uh, Nightingale those wards, have to be under the same ownership for those transfers wards. to occur? Well, it's a very complicated legal framework. It's been published. It's fully transparent so everybody can read all that right. and the Minister of Health can, will answer all of those questions. OK, let's talk about that
1: because what's going to happen in the next two weeks? I mean, this is then going to go back before Cabinet. The hope from government certainly would be that it will just fly through and that will be it, Kevin.
5: I don't think it'll fly through, but I do think we are reaching a point now where if Stephen Donnelly takes this two weeks to try and explain this, I, I'm not sure he's going to convince people like Louise or, or, or some of the other opposition parties that we saw speaking out in the Dáil today. But he'll do his two weeks. He'll, he'll put whatever information, more published today, obviously. And then, to be honest, Claire, I think he either has to decide we're doing this or throw it all up in the air and go back to square one. Because it has reached the point now that this has been talked about for so long that politically, you can't just keep coming up with reasons to push the can down the road in this. It's it's now or never. And,
1: and Louise, this was first mooted 24 years ago, this idea of of relocating the National Maternity Hospital. Sinn Féin has consistently said, we don't want this uh, held up. So what would give it the green light now in the next couple of weeks? (laughs)
2: Well, we need a publicly owned, publicly funded hospital built on public land. And I think there are very real, and see, when, when I hear things like Oh, the Vatican weren't involved. Oh, no, but they had to get permission. But hang on that makes my it, no, 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 let me finish, because that makes my blood run cold. Yeah. And I, that, that gives me a concern. OK, so it is welcome that the government have recognised that there's an issue. That's the first thing. Okay, So the intention was this to go through cabinet. It didn't, clearly didn't get through cabinet. So now there is going to be a period whereby there can be some interaction. I welcome the fact that the minister is going to be at the health committee. That's a good place for that detailed engagement to take place. I think he should come into the dol and do questions and answers as has been done previously and I don't think that's off the agenda and we have an opportunity then at this stage but the, the way the, that this is structured it is very convoluted and the, the people remain to be convinced that there won't be okay. some influence on behalf of the, the Catholic no, Church I mean. and that causes not just me mm. but many other women and yeah. I mean the Minister will be aware of this we have been in receipt
1: of a massive amount of correspondence I mean, from our constituents say. and Shane on this really clearly it's not just a political matter I, I'm sure it has been Been said outside of political spheres that women up and down the country, and you know, parents, families, whatever, would have concerns that this—the one billion euro is being spent on this hospital—that it is, it is publicly owned, publicly funded, and on public land. That 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 would be important for people. Well, given the history in this
4: country, the National Maternity is a voluntary hospital. It wants to remain a voluntary hospital co-located at St. Vincent's. That's what we're planning. That's what's been proposed. That's what we want. That's what, as clinicians, we feel will allow us to provide the best care for our patients. There is no religious involvement. Uh, it's a secular charity. There's no public juridic body that the, that would be appointed by the Vatican. the that, that St. Vincent's have come out and said that. So there's, there is no religious involvement in this. It is a secular charity, not-for-profit, and, and that's who we're aligning ourselves with.
1: So, so you, just briefly on this, just so you would say the idea around public ownership, all of these things are, are irrelevant as far as you're concerned.
4: If anyone has a problem with the way we run the maternity service at the National Maternity Hospital, say so, because that's exactly what we plan on doing. We're going to move that and relocate it. We're going to have exactly the same. Um, operational and independence that we have, as we have now.
3: Eric, can I just okay, say, I, I think that clinical, financial, operational, and and budgetary independence is absolutely crucial. But, you know, I think I, I, I do understand why the women of Ireland, and not just women, men, are concerned about this because of the way women yeah. have been treated in Ireland, this country. But I don't think that this is it, that, that, there, that there's a conspiracy here at all. Um, I think that, you know, it, it is genuine. I think all fears will be laid over the next number of weeks.
1: All right, well, we will see um, what comes of that and what questions are answered on it. In other news tonight, the Secretary-General of the Department of Health has defended his handling of Dr Tony Houlihan's proposed move to a new position at Trinity College. Robert was accused of breathtaking arrogance during an appearance before the Oireachtas Health Committee. Earlier, Dr Hulan had outlined his decision not to go ahead with that Trinity role.
6: When I saw the way that the the the, um, the concerns if you like they were being expressed in public or going I thought it was important that I made an early decision which I did uh, that I would not proceed with the
5: role committing funding without any ministerial approval the very fact that you don't get that smacks of arrogance it has okay. to be said and it is simply Amazing. not good enough there was no expenditure of
4: public money there was no sanction of public money it was a letter of intent consistent with
6: government policy which had been set out uh, very clearly could you be persuaded to think again well nobody but... <laughs> Nobody thus far sought to persuade me. So, OK, I mean, that's a hypothetical situation if if I say to you with respect. OK, but it's not a no. Uh, no, it wasn't a no.
1: OK, well, there are uh, quite testy exchanges there before the Iraqist Committee. Kevin, on this, um, you know, Robert Watts saying he regrets that this proposal is uh, not going ahead. Does government regret that?
5: Oh, I think, yeah, I think everybody regrets what has happened here. what well, I suppose what's more interesting is more that Robert Rock kind of seems to be saying he regrets that it didn't go ahead, not how it was handled and the reasons for it not going ahead and the reasons for it not going ahead were that it did appear to be cloak and dagger and there was promises of money uh, and while yes, ultimately it may have been signed off uh, at some stage, it all just seemed to happen very badly. and I think We've kind of reached a point in this country where people just won't put up with that anymore. That that sort of thing went on and has gone on for decades, and people now like to see things done properly. And this wasn't.
1: Uh, and uh, party colleague David Conan accusing um, Robert Watt of breathtaking arrogance in this one: two million euro uh, of taxpayers' money uh, signed off on essentially. Uh, Twenty
2: million it,
1: euro. Twenty million. Twenty-two million a year. Around for ten years.
2: Signed off without. Yeah, signed position. off without ministerial approval because. Well, hey, he felt uh, empowered to do it. Um, The the minister was left out of the loop. The minister was actually left to do media without full possession of the facts when the secretary general had full possession of the facts but uh, the idea that a civil servant albeit one of the uh, highest paid civil servants in the state although we don't, know how, for, <laughs> we don't yeah. know how long for,
5: we don't know how
2: long for because he hasn't actually said when he uh, when he ceased to waive his massive pay increase but the idea that he would think it's okay to enter into an arrangement mm. um, to issue a letter of intent as he calls it himself um, which would result in the spending right. of 20 million euros in public money and do it without recourse course, to the Minister is very worrying, of course it is. I think more Quinn's report will be helpful
1: when it comes out uh, in relation to this. Okay, all right. that's all we have time for on that topic. My thanks to Professor Shane Higgins. The rest of our panel will be staying with us after the break. The EU's plans to ban Russian oil by the end of this year. Welcome back. Russia is facing its toughest round of sanctions yet as the EU proposes a gradual ban on Russian oil. Well, a little earlier, I spoke to journalist for Politico Europe, Suzanne Lynch, for the very latest on the escalating economic war between Russia and the West.
0: Yes. Well, today, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, announced the sixth sanction package. So we've had five different packages of sanctions from the EU towards Russia, and they really have been the most kind of serious, dramatic sanctions we've seen ever by the EU towards any country. But uh, getting over the line, the last six packages sanctions has proved difficult. This morning she was in Strasbourg. She announced a new package of sanctions. This included various measures, including hitting further individuals. taking off more Russian banks from the SWIFT international payment system. But most importantly, it included a ban on Russian oil. Now, uh, there were uh, limitations to this. So she was proposing a six-month time frame for phasing out Russian oil and then um, using, at the end of the year, as a new timetable to uh, phase out refined oil. However, Claire, this evening in Brussels, it's still not a done deal. We're seeing a lot of countries raising objections. Von der Leyen presented this commission proposal, and then this afternoon in, in Brussels, uh, the ambassadors of all 27 EU member states, including Ireland, met to discuss this. And really, they didn't reach agreement. You had some countries particularly Hungary and Slovakia, saying that they were very dependent on oil, that they needed um, a few more uh, moves by the Commission to make this proposal, proposal feasible. So it's still not a done deal. And we expect these negotiations to continue for the next few days.
1: There's more difficulty when it comes to any sort of embargo on gas. Tell us why that is.
0: Yes, that's very true. I mean, we're talking about oil, and that's difficult to get agreement on. But when you come to gas, it's even more serious. And that's mainly because Europe is so dependent on Russian gas. So around 41% of all gas imports come from Russia in the EU. And within that, then, you've got certain countries who are more dependent than others. So countries like Germany, countries like Italy are extremely dependent on gas. So they are resisting that move. They're saying they're not ready uh, to turn off those taps, that they don't have alternative sources at this point. They, of course, are looking at alternative sources. We had the Italian Prime Minister, Mario Draghi, for example, a few weeks ago in North Africa, looking at trying to access new energy sources for Europe. But the sense is that they're not at that point yet, for the next few months, for the next year or so, and they won't be able to wean themselves off Russian gas so, so far. Um, So that's why they've already banned Russian coal and now they're looking at oil. Uh, We know that Ireland as a member
1: state is is in favour of of oil and gas uh, bans coming from Russia. But what impact could all of this have here?
0: Yeah, I mean, it depends on, I mean, we've 27 countries in the EU. Each country has very different energy markets, energy supplies, energy sources. So Ireland is one of the countries who would be least affected, really, by a full ban on Russian gas or oil. But obviously what it would be affected by would be the price rises rises that we're already seeing and that we would expect would get much more acute when we have this oil ban that now looks imminent, uh, but also if they were to um, hit Russian gas as well. Um, I mean, one of the issues the EU is looking at is trying to integrate more of the EU energy market so countries can kind of share gas resources, maybe build more interconnectors and more inter-border gas lines, those kind of things. But they are very much for the long term. At the moment, each country has its own situation, its own uh, particular oh. energy sources and energy systems. Um, and that's one of the problems now, as the EU tries to take a, a common position towards Russia it's actually quite fractured and quite different depending on whereabouts in the EU you live
1: and thanks to Suzanne for that update from Brussels Kevin Doyle Josefa Madigan and Louise O'Reilly are still here with me in studio and Kevin uh, sanctions no doubt about it will put further pressure on the market we've got a cost of living crisis here and um, it is likely to have an impact we know we're hearing from government ministers well not so you know we Necessarily, and around fuel supplies not being an issue, but all the same, you know, the pressure is really likely to come on, isn't
5: it? Oh, it's inevitable. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think anybody can claim that this isn't going to add further woes to to the cost of living crisis that we're we're already having. If we cut off what we won't run out of oil. Let's let's not get into that space for a second. But if the amount of oil is restricted or it has to be sourced from other places, well then. Obviously, prices get hit by that. If there's less less supply out there, demand doesn't change, prices will go up. So I think that is inevitable. That it will come not today or tomorrow, perhaps, but as it goes on, um, it will. If gas changes, if gas is sanctioned at a later date, that's a whole other story. But yeah, I think the longer this war goes on the more we're going to feel it in our own pockets.
1: Yeah, and Joseph, we know that we're already feeling it. I think some new retail figures that came out yesterday from Kantar saying one in four people are struggling to make ends meet on the weekly shop. The weekly shop has gone up, um, but the government isn't planning on doing any more. So what should people do?
3: Uh, but first of all, I think you're right. I think everything has gone up. I think everybody's noticing it um, when they're doing their daily shopping um, and looking at their utility bills. And that's why in the budget, we put in £1 and um, another £800 million since then in terms of trying to help people um, in terms of the fuel allowance, uh, in terms of a number of different measures. So we're always listening. That was in the to, budget. To, and that was, nope, that nope, was but pre, some the, there pre-war. There have been recent measures as well. There was the €200 euro towards the energy credit. Um, there has been a number of, of different schemes um, that we're trying to assist people on a, on a daily basis. So, do you know what they're, they're saying about
1: that 200 euro credit? That already the cost of living and the, the rises that we're seeing across the board are just negating that.
3: Yeah. And the reality is is that you know government can't completely insulate people from this economic crisis, uh, which has been precipitated by this war on the back of a pandemic. Um, but it is looking at all measures that it can do, um, you know, uh, on a daily basis to try to assist people.
1: Yeah, Pascal Dunhu has said no further measures. Um, so you know, are we likely to see any further measures? Is is this it now? There will be there will be the nothing else before is, the budget, according know, to the minister. Is always listening, um, and
3: I, I think you know the difficulty with this war is predicting how long it's going to last we don't know that um we don't know now with these new sanctions uh, in relation to oil in relation to gas and everything like that so i wouldn't right. necessarily uh, uh, say that there's a complete ruling out uh, of new measures to assist people but we may have to wait till the budget it may be before that it's something that i know right. that the government are considering
1: the government is always listening and josefa says louise
2: um I, I, I genuinely do wish that that was the case. Um, I suppose the, we were in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis, something that um, particularly uh, Piers Starr, and Mairead Farrell have been raising and, and Claire Curran for, for a number of months now, back, uh, even as far back as last September, uh, there was a cost-of-living crisis. There was a, a rise in the cost-of-living and we saw uh, that, that inflation. And all of this now has been exacerbated by the, the Russian invasion of, uh, of Ukraine. And I suppose... We acknowledge in Sinn Féin that the government can't do everything. We know that they can't do everything, but we do think that they could do more. Uh, and certainly when you're in the middle of a cost of living crisis, when you uh, are already and there are people and, and if the government is listening, they'll be listening to people telling them that they are making very hard decisions about whether or not they can heat or eat. I mean, th- th- this is a fact. This is how people are living uh, these days. So I suppose what we wanted to see from the government, that they wouldn't make it worse. Um, which they did, they, they put yeah. an additional carbon tax on top uh, of heating for people already. So if you yeah. heat your home with oil, that's doubled we, we've in the... So if I could just finish Euro without interruption, as well, please. But, you know, if you heat your home with oil, that's... That has doubled already. So, you know, people are already making really difficult decisions about having to turn their heating off. And that is deeply concerning. <laughs> so if the government is listening, yeah, that's well, what they're you, hearing. Are
3: listening in Northern Ireland, uh, Louise, you know, to, to the cost of living crisis? Because I'm not sure are. that you are. Which is why we
2: want the executive back. hypocrisy really between quickly, Northern Ireland and here. really, really, so really quickly. One so one so rule for the Republic and one rule 1 for Northern Ireland. One billion euros, one billion pounds, my apologies. So if you're listening to what's happening in the North Minister, and I've been up there canvassing a good bit now in the last while. Definitely people are feeling the pinch, but they want the executive back. And I hope you back, Michelle O'Neill, right. in her call well, to you get the back. Uh, I, I just want to bring in another here. story. Uh, yes, you're only giving ninety-five it, uh, starting starting up, I just it want it to backwards. bring up another story uh, that will run, certainly, stick,
1: certainly stick in the craw of people who are really feeling the pinch right now. Um, that was a story in the front of your paper today, Kevin. Uh, the rich get richer, according to a report out, and people availing of COVID schemes, some of the ultra-rich in this country, to avoid paying tax.
5: Yeah, and uh, I mean, they will ultimately have to pay it, but they effectively got an interest-free loan. And how it worked was in, in the raft of things that were brought in, like the PUP and the Employment Subsidy Scheme, there was also this scheme that allowed debt warehousing. And basically, that meant that people who had lost a significant 20-25% of their income there was down, that they could basically put off paying their taxes Um but perhaps what wasn't perceived is that in revenue, they have this section that deals with the super rich, people who earn more than 20 million a year. And quite a few of them seem to have availed of this tax scheme. So you have people earning millions who decided to effectively take an interest free loan from the state, from the taxpayer, um, and push their tax bills down the road. Um, so they'll ultimately will pay the tax, but they were allowed to basically put six million uh, on the back burner.
1: Yeah, this scheme has been in place for quite a while, covering um, the entire pandemic. Could this not have been sorted out sooner? Could this not have been identified as a problem, Josefa?
3: Yeah, I mean, this, is one of, uh, this was one of a series of measures that were brought in in, in a very quick period of time to assist businesses. But so not we had, meant to be- well, benefit well, the first millionaires. Of all, just to put it in context, we, we had a £20 billion direct uh, investment uh, towards businesses. Um, we had at the PUP, uh, which is £5.4 billion. We had the CRIS scheme, which benefited 25,500 mm. uh, people. And this particular scheme that you're talking about benefited 94,000 people at a cost of £2.9 billion. Only 0.2% of that. Was for for the for the for the rich, if you want to call it. The majority were under three million, a,
1: but there still was
3: a percentage of that that was acquired, yeah, but, but, as but this story I think shows, Kevin by said those there, who are the richest uh, among it, the richest the people all they in this the country. To do was, was it's just been put off it's not that they don't have to pay it and right. uh, there, they don't a, have the, to pay taxes due and like i mean they will save phase, money in that they have to agree a phased management yeah. Uh, yeah, payment plan long. with with the revenue um and well they get penalized uh, with 8 so yeah. to 10% interest if they don't actually
2: adhere to what if the if they if they do uh, they're getting a, a really nice uh, handy Interest-free it, loan. It, 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 the, the, no, that's from effectively the what it edi- is. Edi- eligibility of the, the people uh, benefit
3: from it. so It's 0.02%, okay. so, which uh, is like
2: tiny. Quite good. So, thing. the um, in response to a parliamentary question that that I asked, uh, the Department of Finance advised that they are also preparing to write off a lot of this debt to the tune of it could be up to 750 million euros. So, you know, when people talk about the upstairs-downstairs nature of the government, you know, one law are, are, for the rich and another for everybody else. Is that, right? Let me finish her uh, point. Yeah. Well, I show you the PQ, Minister. Um, So it came from the Department of Finance. So the the point being, I think people see this for what it is. You know, it's a tax break for the super rich. It's an interest-free loan when they pay it back. It's different treatment to the ordinary person who could go to prison for not paying their television licence. These boys have easy access into the government and you can see the impact of that there. This
3: benefited ordinary businesses, 94,000 individual businesses. And millionaires worth more than 20 million euros. And and the Chris scheme. And we will have to look in the coming weeks, Because when all those schemes come to an end,
1: we're going to see a lot of businesses impacted by that change. Look, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Kevin Doyle and the rest of the panel will be staying with us because coming up after the break, betting companies report a rise in monthly players and drinking in the home is on the rise. Welcome back today. Paddy Power, Betfair, and fan dual owner Flutter Entertainment have reported that the cost of living crisis in its Ireland and UK market is not putting customers off gambling. The frequency and amount of money people are betting remains consistent with 2019 levels. And the average number of those partaking in gambling is continuing to rise by 15% year on year. Minister of State Josefa Madigan and Sinn Fein's Louise O'Reilly are still with us. And I'd also like to welcome psychotherapist and columnist with the Irish Examiner, Richard Hogan. Um, Um, Richard, this goes to show, I imagine, that uh, addiction does not wane despite circumstances of anyone.
6: Absolutely. Some industries are impervious to the slings and arrows of economy. And obviously, gambling is one of those because it impacts parts of the brain of reward. So when we go gambling, uh, you know, it releases chemicals like dopamine, serotonin, endorphins, which act as neurotransmitters, which tell us, wow, that was great. So that's going to be... That's, that's not going to rely on external factors. So that's why we see during any sort of you know, shift in economy, people gamble. And we have to be careful, Claire, because there's little things called loot boxes. I don't know if you're aware about them, but they're, they're, they're inherent in, in games. So kids mm-hmm. playing Fortnite, there's these little boxes jumping, a lot, jumping around inside the game. And they introduced, the research is really robust on this, they introduced kids to gambling very early.
1: So these are little pop-ups.
6: Little pop up little that, uh... boxes <clears throat> that you, you can pay to get like, weapons or skins and the, the outcome is unknowable. So they are absolutely structurally and psychologically akin you're to gambling. You're
1: paying uh, to take a risk. Yeah. Uh, essentially on this, and you mentioned it there, like a kid's ac- accessing it, but it's the fact that gambling has become so accessible. Yeah. How much has the, the online format of gambling now played into the rise and what we're seeing and the fact that things like cost of living uh, will oh. not impact on people's habit?
6: I think that the online gambling has been just incredibly destructive for families in Ireland. I work, I'm work. i a family psychotherapist, I have a clinic, and we see it every day, the impact that online gambling is having. Because, say, retail gambling, you go into the shop and you, you, are, you, know, you have to follow the hours of opening hours, online gambling, problematic gambling. If you're a problematic gambler, you can gamble at four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning. There's no limit to what you can spend there. It's incredible that we haven't got regulation there to monitor this stuff.
1: Yeah, let's talk about regulation in this area. Um, Louise O'Reilly, it's something that you feel very strongly about. We have been told that there is this, this legislation um, that will be drafted around the area. We're going to have a gambling regulator. What changes are we likely to see and what's urgent now, do you think?
2: So I suppose the the government missed a very important deadline with the appointment of the gambling uh, regulator. We were promised that it would happen by the end of 2021. Um, but my understanding is the uh, the ads have only just closed now, so that person hasn't been appointed. Uh, this is an issue that I know, and there's cross-party support for this. It was put forward by Fianna Fáil and a PMB. I know Fine Gael had also put forward legislation. So I think it's just a question of looking now at what we could do in the, the short term. And I'm very taken by what Richard said in relation to people gambling online. Uh, and my colleague, Dr uh, Thomas Gould, has a piece of legislation which would limit the use of credit cards um, and, and online gambling. And I think in the absence of the major piece of legislation being able to be enacted in the short term, and acknowledging the fact that there is a crisis. I mean, 73% of people that were surveyed recently said they're buying cheaper food in order to pay their bills, and yet these gambling companies, it, 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 there's no impact on them at all. That shows there is a serious problem, and I would like to see yeah. the government work with opposition yeah. to progress. Uh, Deputy, Gould's now bill the to make sure funny that enough, would goes, say
1: uh, on, on this right? the fact that their revenues are actually down because of measures they have imposed to regulate. Uh, gambling to a certain oh, yeah. extent security measures that oh, i'm sure
2: personal. they i'm sure they would and i'm sure if they were here uh, they they would probably sing it as well yeah. but the fact is that people who have are dealing with problem gambling it permeates every part of your life, so it's not—it's not so. It may not be so mm. destructive, that, but it gets into every part of your life. So you find that the, you know we talk to people who have come out of uh, a gambling addiction or come out of a period of problem gambling. They will tell you they cut back on everything. They lose their friends in some instances. They lose their jobs, and it causes them no end of problems at home, at work, etc. Well, so I don't think okay. the gambling companies can turn a blind eye to that. I think what we need, though, is—I mean, we all know yeah. where self-regulation. Gets us right, so there has. There to needs be, to be teeth. Yeah, and very on this one, just you
1: now people yeah. would say we are very behind other countries when it comes to a gambling regulator. We don't really have those positions in place. Essentially. It's it's left up to services like Richard to deal with the fallout um, yeah, from gambling I mean, addiction. Th- there is a a, a a bill actually that's
3: going through the Oireachtas, Um Justice Committee at the moment. It's for, under pre legislative scrutiny, um, and there will be uh, a gambling regulatory authority of Ireland, which which will be set up through this bill. Mm. Um, but something like ten thousand. Uh, people gamble a minute. There's about 29,000 people apparently addicted to gambling. Um, I know David Stanton uh, back in 2018 did a lot of work uh, around this, um, you know, uh, uh, this particular area, particularly around uh, lotteries as well. Um, so it's taking a while though for all
1: of this to, to, to yeah, come and through. It's, like it's, we're not likely to see this regulated, I, I don't th- think, until next year, 2023. Yeah, well, despite all this all being announced or put before cabinet
3: yeah, last yeah. year. Five hundred thousand has been put aside uh, from the budget in terms of appointing uh, a CEO uh, to this to, uh, as a, I suppose, a, the regulator uh, of this industry. But I mean, it's keeping up with technology as well, like apps and websites yeah. uh, and devices. And you know, my two sons played yeah. Fortnite, and um, so you know, I know it's that endorphin hit that they get. Um, but I, I do think it's particularly urgent and particularly urgent on the back of the pandemic.
1: Right. Um, but it is being done. Want to talk about and um, drinking statistics that were released as well this week from from Drink Aware and increase in drinking at home now this was a pandemic trend that we saw mm. um you know really come into focus i suppose in 2020 but it's showing now that it's a trend that is continuing despite mm. people being free to go out to go to the pubs again um to socialize more they're still drinking a lot at home
6: yeah i think well first of all i think we saw in lockdown one a massive rise in uh, you know uh, um off-license usage and, and i and lockdown two and three i think it all normalized again but i think the cost of living clear mm. i think going to a pub I think buying, you know, I think all of that stuff is just so. I think the cost of living has risen so much that people are taking the the cheaper option. And I think What's the issue
1: them. with with drinking at home? You know, from from your perspective, yeah, and families, well, you're seeing I, an addiction issue I, issues
6: I, as, that you're dealing with. Domestic abuse would be something that you'd see. You know, generally, if somebody was out and drinking in the pub, they're not going to be at home with the kids, and they're not going to be at home. You know, and so if they're drunk and, they're, and there's domestic violence there, there's a huge problem there, and the, you know, the, those th- those things go together. Terribly, un- un- unfortunately, for families, and we-, we would see that a lot. You know, that the more you drink at home, the more potential there is for you know a spillover of violence and, and, and domestic abuse.
1: Yeah, I suppose the cost-saving measures that are there are ones though, that are that are very pertinent to people right now. As you're saying, if it's costing so much. Um, to, to, to go out and have a drink, then maybe people are more likely to do it at home. Mm. It's interesting as well that WHO is uh, increasingly uh, 18 to 24-year-olds have um, reported significant levels of stress and tension um, around the pandemic and in turn their drinking has increased.
6: Yeah, well, that's, I mean, it's it's like a maladaptive response to stress. That's what we do sometimes. We, we take very negative things into our life. When we feel negative, it's like a, it's what we call in psychology a positive, psych, a positive feedback loop. So we take something negative into our life that makes us feel even more negative. And so we move further and further from balance. So the more we move from balance, the more we take something negative into our life. And so when a teenager, let's say, experiences the, the disruption to their peer life and they drink alcohol, it's going to make them feel further isolated and further like you know ill and, and just not feeling connected themselves and their family and friends
1: so how hard is it to to break those habits uh, we are seeing this growing trend we've seen this and, and and you'll hear it from government about you know the need to change a culture around all yeah. this i
6: what
4: think because abso-
1: this is this is a story as a, repeatedly come absolutely,
6: to. Absolutely, as a father of three daughters and you know just as a human being living on this planet and being in ireland the advertising of alcohol has to stop i mean it absolutely has to stop i i actually interviewed mihala martin um Years ago, about this, and we talked about the new legislation that was coming in, and that was great that the, you know they separated and What did he say? Oh, that he agreed that you know this is absolutely something that we have to look at, and the separation
3: of Would you be in favour of,
1: of that, Joseph? Well,
3: one thing I've always had a particular issue with, um, is advertising attached to sport. Um, yeah. I, I, I I don't think they're symbiotic, they shouldn't be, and they should be separated. Um, but uh, you know, drinking is, is very much in, in the Irish DNA, it's something that. That people do, and and, you know, and but it it has been particularly difficult, I think, during the pandemic. And you know, when we look back to the recession, domestic violence and
1: addiction were very, very. Uh, And briefly, Louise, do you think more needs to be done, or is this the story that we're just going to? Keep no more, to... more
2: needs to be done. The Public Health Alcohol Bill, the implementation of it was actually paused uh, because of COVID. Well, we uh, so the, 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 sections, the sections on advertising
1: and labelling haven't been implemented. They're extremely important. They need to be actioned okay. quickly. that is it from us. My thanks to all our guests who joined me on the show tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning from all the team here. Good night. Take care.